Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hi everyone, I'm Alexa Clay, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's online event. I'm delighted to have the chance to talk this afternoon to Anand Girdidas. Anand is the best-selling author of The Persuaders, Winning Hearts and Minds in a Divided Age, and Winners Take All, the Elite Charade of Changing the World. He was a foreign correspondent and columnist for the New York Times. He's also written for Time, The Atlantic, The New Republic, and The New Yorker. He's an on-air political analyst for MSNBC, and he's received Harvard University's Outstanding Lifetime Achievement Award for Humanism and Culture, and the New York Public Library's Helen Bernstein Award. Anand, welcome. Thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I remember the first time I spoke in that incredible room um, in in London. Uh, Zoom is not quite that room, but um, (laughs) we will try. I know your your previous book, Winners Took All, really shook things up. I, I spoke to so many people who felt like it inflicted this deep existentialism and, and this need for them to re-examine how they were trying to, to change the world. And so really just appreciate uh, your authorship and was really excited to pick up your latest book, The Persuaders. Uh, the central arc of this book is around how democracy can be saved and really an examination of the people who are going to save it. I'm wondering if you could just take a moment to introduce us to some of these persuaders that you profile in the book and and really the challenges that they're up against. Yeah, you know, look, I I think whether you're, uh, you know, in the United States or Europe or Brazil or India or any number of places, um, if you're not worried about the future of democracy, you're not paying attention. You know, we live in this moment in which democracy the very persistence of it is threatened by, you know, outright uh, anti-democratic movements, by fascist movements uh, here in the United States and elsewhere, um, in other places merely by, you know, very serious disinformation uh, that poisons the well of deliberation by, by you know, the fracturing of our societies in which common ground seems impossible, right? And some places like the United States really have all of these negative things going on. Uh, Places like Britain, you know, don't necessarily have some of those things going on, but have some of the other things going on. But I think everywhere, democracy is under incredible stress. And I would say, you know, particularly in in an era that has seen the rise of China as this like alternative superpower offering a an authoritarian, even increasingly kind of totalitarian approach. Um, It is very scary that the kind of few hundred year run of democracy as kind of an unquestioned good, an unquestioned superior system, it just doesn't feel so inevitable anymore. It doesn't feel like that's it. So the book um, starts in a way from the premise that this is a scary thing and that democracy, as you said, needs to be saved, and that there are people who are doing incredible work on the ground to save it, who uh, we need to learn from. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are resisting, I think, something that has really crept into many of our democracies, which is a kind of contempt and a dismissal for people who disagree with us, uh, sentiments that are in some ways totally natural in the high stakes environment we live in, but also are antithetical to democracy. If you give up on the idea that people's minds can change, that you can reach people, you can find common ground with people. Once you give up on those things, you are essentially opening the door 
to tyranny, to political violence, the civil war, to all these terrible things. So I, I wrote a book about persuaders who I wanted to learn from what they were doing, uh, activists, organizers, others. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of some of the people, you know, um, I wrote about uh, Linda Sarsour, who organized the co-organized uh, the largest, I think, single day protest in American history, the Women's March, the day after Trump's inauguration in 2017. I, I interviewed Alicia Garza, uh, one of the progenitors of the Black Lives Matter movement, one of the most uh, powerful social movements, again, in, in world history. Uh, I interviewed uh, Loretta Ross, reproductive justice advocate, kind of coined, helped coin the notion of reproductive justice as opposed to merely reproductive rights, a more holistic view of the pressures bearing down on women as they seek to have autonomy, not just the right to abortion, but, you know, what is the immigration policy of that woman who might be carrying a child? What is the economic uh, power that that woman might have? Uh, really broadened the view and put that uh, issue on the map in a way that was different. So, you know, how do you change conversations as, as she did so well? Uh, AOC, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a major character of the book. Bernie Sanders is a major character of the book. Uh, Anat Shankar Asoria, the leading messaging consultant on the progressive left, who mm -hmm. I think has a lot to teach us about, you know, how those of us who want more progress, not less, need to communicate to those who are still on the fence about the kind of progress we seek. Um, and 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 people doing deep canvassing, which is a door-to-door -door movement of canvassing, where they try to do kind of live action persuasion on the door uh, and have shown remarkable success moving people uh, on some of the hardest issues we have. Um, and so I wrote about people who are doing, I think, what most of us are struggling to do as well as they are, which is to actually change people's minds, actually believe that people can change, actually show how it can be done. And I have to say, Alexa, I, I was not so excited about the way the world looked when I started reporting the book. Mm -hmm. And I came away from the reporting and the writing incredibly hopeful. These people gave me hope. And I, I, I think they may give some of you hope because far from the, the limelight, they are doing many of them. Some of them are in the limelight too, but they are doing work on the ground in communities that I think show that democracy has legs, it has a chance, um, but it's gonna require changing many of our ways and reclaiming this idea of persuading. Really fascinating. And so when you think about the mindsets, the behaviors, or you know, the art of persuasion, what are some of the characteristics that these, these people share in that they have in common? And what would be some of the things that we could even think about incorporating in our own life that these people really embody? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The way I do my books, I really let them be people-led and character-led, not idea-led, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I start, I, I, I have a general idea or a kind of an area, and then I follow people. And what's interesting about that is you follow people where they go, you follow what they say, what they're thinking, how they're colliding with the world, and, and there's no big idea necessarily connecting it. And then at the end, you actually find that there are some threads because the same different people have told you some of the same things over and over again in different ways. And those ideas always to me feel the most powerful because you know, it can't just be a coincidence, right? Like there, there's something that multiple people in different situations who don't know each other are tapping into, right? So let me tell you some of those threads that I think emerged from 
seven, eight, nine different characters living different realities, but but telling me the same thing at some level. Probably the biggest one is that our mental model of people on the opposite side of us politically is fundamentally flawed. Most of our mental, I think most of us these days in this age of polarization and division, think of people on the far side of us politically as being fundamentally monolithic in that view and in, in their commitments, right? Yeah, there's a deep othering, right? Yep. And, and of course they're othering us and we're othering them. Now, I know that I am complicated. I'm full of warring sentiments, right? I, I may say something in the world, but I have doubt about it in my own heart. Now I like you, so I may grant that you are complicated too. I may, I may sit with you and honor your complexity, but the further people get away from us politically, we imagine that's not the case for them. They are just like a solid block of a conviction, of an identity, of a whatever they are. Now, the problem with this view is a twofold. I mean, first of all, it's not true. It's not true. Uh, people are, as Beyonce says, contradicted. Um, you know, people are full of uh, full of complexity, even when they hold very toxic stances or very strident stances. Um, and the second reason this is problematic is it's incredibly self-defeating um, politically to tell yourself that there is nothing going on within those on the other side of an issue from you besides the, their outward stance. If, uh, if folks in the LGBT movement 30 years ago had looked at homophobes, Christian homophobes, and said, there's nothing else going on in those people. They're just Christian homophobes all the way down. You just biopsy those people. You're just gonna find Christian layers and layers of Christian homophobia. Well, we now know 30 years later with, by the way, 12 Republican senators joining Democrats this week to vote to legalize same-sex marriage. Um, we now know that that was not the only thing going on in those people. Some of the other things going on in those people, you know, for example, was that they love their kids. And a whole bunch of them, significant fraction of them turned out over the last many years to have gay kids. Some of them realized they were gay themselves. Yeah. Some of them learned their parents were gay and never maybe told anyone. Turns out the story that those Christian homophobes were only Christian homophobes was false. Those people also didn't want to be on the wrong side of history. That's another thing going on in people. And when it felt like you could be homophobic and be on the right side of history, as it did in the 90s or whatever, they did that. When it started to feel in more recent years, like you were either not homophobic or on the wrong side of history, a whole bunch of people decided they want to get on the right side of history. Uh, some of them maybe not even knowing a gay person. So that's just one example. Yeah of someone having a, a lot of people, legions of people, tens of millions of people having a totally odious stance. And if you have the, if you have the um, grace, but also just the strategy to recognize there's more going on in those people, mm -hmm. then you can start to play on those heartstrings. You can play on that desire of people to love their kids and be good to their kids. You can play on that desire of people to be on the wrong, not be on the wrong side of history as the gay rights movement so effectively did. Um, you can- that's, you know, It's interesting to me because I think so much of 
the ways in which we don't acknowledge other people's humanity or complexity, um, where we do dehumanize and other people, you know, fit in with, you know, this kind of capitalistic march, right? Where you traced in your previous book, the ways in which we were turning ideas into memes and people into products. And when people are products, uh, you know, we see them superficially, you know, the kind of we enroll each other as consumers of ideas and things become more tribalistic. So in the in the background, it feels like there's this sort of complicated tapestry of capitalism that's also contributing. Yeah. to the And I would say actually one other thing that really helped me think about this. Elizabeth McLaughlin is a you know writer and lawyer and podcaster and great kind of voice of, of resistance to American fascism. She said something to me, like playing my work in this book back to me in a way that I thought was really interesting. And in a way that I think was designed to make people on the left hear what I'm saying better. She said, we often have a kind of carceral approach to disagreement, Mm. which I thought was kind of interesting, right? Because the left is for a non-carceral approach to, you know, people who commit crimes, whatever. Um, But we have a carceral approach to like having the wrong opinion, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's interesting. There is something of, and I, I have absolutely participated in this. Like I absolutely, and I still kind of feel it's fine. If you don't want to talk to someone because they voted for Trump, you don't feel safe around someone who voted for, like I, I totally get that. And and I think, by the way, everybody should be free to feel that way and not engage anybody they don't want to. However, I think this book is about some people. I think, you know, this book's about weird ducks also. This is a book, a book about people generally who are willing to do things that many of the rest of us will not be willing to do in that concentrated form. And that's okay. They should be allowed to do that. And we should be allowed to not do it if we don't want to. But this is a book about people saying like, taking a carceral approach to disagreement is just like how you lose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't lock up everybody who doesn't want the kind of future you want. You got to pull them in. Yeah, I found that incredibly compelling. And also just how some of these protagonists um, were willing to put some of their ideologies or just more deeply held experiences and beliefs on the line because they felt like this historic moment was different. And there was something happening now, for example, with the women's movement that presented an opportunity. And I think that ability to sort of detach from your own programming and your own experience to acknowledge that, you know, reality is actually handing us a different invitation right now. Um, I'm just curious from, you know, you said you you had your own experiences where you looked at your yourself and interrogation in writing this. Um, and that's something I did in, in reading your book as well, thinking about, well, what are some of the ideologies that I hold? And when's the last time that someone's changed my mind about a topic? Um, and I think when you're younger, it happens all the time because you're really in this emergent kind of identity where you're a lot more porous. And then that kind of idea of kind of reasoning um, stops at a certain point and you're just kind of living out um the lock-in from some of the decisions that you've already made. Uh, So one of the examples that I thought about was universal basic income, where the first time I heard this idea proposed by two Frenchmen, I was just so skeptical, mostly because they were French and I didn't think we could model an economy based on those ideas. Um, But really stuck with that idea and started thinking about my own bias around deserving and undeserving poor and work is a guarantee of material security and just deprogrammed around that. Um, And I know, you know, this is an issue with the RSA right now in terms of union debates and 
um, you know, as progressives, our unions, you know, 100% something we get behind regardless, or are there contexts in which unions are a good tool and other contexts in which unions um, might not be the most appropriate solution? So just wondering if there are any um, particular issues that you've come up against in the past few years where you where someone really changed your mind on something and persuaded you. Yeah, I mean, I would say... Uh, although it's a kind of dorky example, maybe. Uh, I mean, I would say Joe Biden, mm. President Joe Biden, who was really not my flavor of politician when he ran the primary. To me, he incarnated the kind of moderate, corporate friendly, uh, you know, pro-business, neoliberal, voting for wars and that kind of stuff. Democrat that was, you know, responsible in some ways for the kind of world we lived in, not just Republicans who really fought militantly for that world, but Democrats who sort of assented passively to that world. And I was, you know, very, very critical of him in the primary, uh, much more interested in, in the progressive candidates who were running against him, uh, disappointed when he won. And a lot of people around him, including some progressives who went to work for him, like kept kind of saying, like, give this guy a chance. Like, this guy's going to be different. He's like old now. He doesn't care. He He's not like burdened by, you know, his own earlier thing. Like he's going to be he's going to like do this as like one last job. <laughs> you know, he's going to have like a kind of fuck it attitude. Um, and I, you know, I don't know. I just I've I've if you're my age or your age, you've seen so many American political leaders on the left, like just disappoint and not deliver real change. And this guy comes in in his late seventies. And I think he's been like a remarkable president, frankly. Wow. You know? yeah. um, I think he, by the way, he, I think he persuaded me because he was so persuadable. Right. Mm -hmm. The last two words of the book and the acknowledgments are openness opens. I think he has been open and therefore has opened up others. You know, he um, was really sensitive to the fact that while he won the primary, uh, progressives had the energy in the party. They had the vitality of the party, the passion of young people. He knows his wing of the party is the boring wing. Right. It's the dull wing. It's the powerful wing, to be sure. But he had a kind of he didn't have an arrogance that I think some other moderate Democrats have had about this. Like he recognized like, I, I wanna be the lead leader of a coalition that has like my flavor of moderates and very progressive. And he's kind of like held together. He put AOC as the co-chair of his climate task force. Like that may seem like a really logical move, but that's like Obama didn't do stuff like that. Clinton didn't do stuff like that. Like Obama and Clinton kind of hated those people, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a way in which, you know, Joe Biden, I really do think, is this older guy in this season of life where you can kind of let things go. And he has put in a bunch of progressives. His economic team, so many people who are super progressive. He passed multiple trillion dollar plus spending bills, which in this country is very, very hard to eke out. Um, you know, fought for things. Uh, has kind of made a case against the neoliberal order and talked about the government is us. The government is, you know, just like really not just passing a couple bills, but like making a case for the idea of government. Uh, the government is not a distant force in a foreign capital, he said in one of his first speeches. Um, when you talk to his advisors, as I do sometimes, they 
they say that they think the purpose of his presidency is to end the neoliberal era, which is a, you know, mm. I, I can assure you something that, you know, Obama and Clinton staffers were probably not saying uh, to, to writers uh, on the phone. So I was persuaded, but that Joe Biden uh, was different. Uh, was was able to rethink and was a you know a much more effective and and successful leader than I had imagined and I and I think he is so persuasive because he's so persuadable. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's interesting and true. And I you know definitely I feel like you're changing my mind in part. But I think part of Biden's success is also with his age. Um, you know, he is not that Obama leader where it is one leader who's going to fix things. I think he Correct. very much has more of a delegation based approach. Correct. And also delegation and coalition, right? Yep. Like, yep. you know, and also, I mean, it's, it's age, but it's a couple other things. Like, and I wrote about this in a piece about uh, Biden like a year and a half ago, you know, Obama and Clinton were stars. Like I have, you know, I've met both Obama and Clinton. Like I will tell you, and you, you don't need to meet them to know this. Like, they're two of the smartest people ever produced in the world. In addition to just whatever you think of them as presidents, like they're smarter than everyone they were who worked for them. Like they're smart, mm. smart people. They are superstars. They were both kind of young and handsome and like dynamic and right. Like, yeah. and part of the downside of that is it's really all about you. It's all about your view. Like they'd read more books than their staffer, right? They, they just, yeah. they had a view of everything. They, they, they knew what they thought about the left. They knew what they thought about that. Biden is a different kind of leader. He's not a star. Yeah. He doesn't speak well. He's basically a kind of like- Wasn't a good student. <laughs> correct. Like not the smartest guy you've ever met. Um, you know, he's like the, like- He's like the homecoming king model of the American presidency, not the valedictorian model of the mm -hmm. American presidency, right? And I think what this is good for is he's, he, I think he does the job, like he's like the head of a coordinating committee for a coalition, mm -hmm. right? Or he's like the like head of like the, a union of unions, like the AFLCI, that kind of, like he's kind of someone whose job is to like hold together I mean, you have toddlers, like he's, he's sort of, it's, his job is, I think he does his job the way like you do your job, you know, like just, we got to just keep these people sort of all, you know, in this house and or all going to this restaurant or, you know, um, and I think there's something to that. It, it's not necessarily my model, right? I mean, I think we're all often drawn to stars and drawn to dynamism. And I think he's done something that's quite different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a terrific example. Um, and just wondering too, I mean, the RSA, for example, as a society, you know, we were founded in this coffeehouse spirit. So much of what it means to be a fellow of the RSA is about being part of a society that believes in reason debate. Um, you know, we're a big tent. People come to the RSA who believe in growth, people who don't believe in economic growth, who believe we should transition to a post-growth reality. We had Adam Smith as a fellow. We had Karl Marx as a fellow. So we just have such kind of heterodox belief systems within the society. And it was founded on that enlightenment coffeehouse spirit, this idea that people came together to discuss ideas and had the time to discuss those ideas. So I think one of the things that's really contributing to this problem of polarization is, you know, that time poverty issue um, where no one really 
can go to the coffee shop and meet up with someone who might hold a different view or might come from a very different cultural belief system. And so what, you know, what are some of the, the paths into this different possible political future that you're imagining? Like, what can we learn from the persuaders in terms of, you know, our own practice, um, our own opportunities? So much of us are on the internet rather than having these conversations in real life, which makes it way easier to dehumanize people. And so, you know, I know there are a number of, um, you know, innovators right now who are working on diff constructing different mediums for how we gather, how we come together. You know, this is an interest of your wife as well um, in terms of, you know, how we actually have place for discourse and for dialogue. And I think part of it is just the deterioration of the commons and that kind of civic space where those conversations can happen. And so, you know, what, what kinds of infrastructures do we need um, to, to make this mandate possible. It's like to create the conditions for that sort of proto-democracy and, and civil society to flourish. Yeah, I, I was just um, reaching across my desk because in Time Magazine a couple weeks ago, I, I did this thing where I tried to take these ideas of the book and make them really applicable to what everyone can do in their own lives. I'm going to just tell you some of the top line things because I think you're right that, I mean, in some ways, this is a problem what we're talking about for elite politicians, but I'm really trying to make the case in this book that this is all of us. Like, we all need to be different. We need these spaces to be different. We need spaces like the RSA and spaces like our workplaces and spaces like our our schools and neighborhoods to function differently. And we need to function differently to behave in these ways that will, you know, tend toward preserving rather than ending democracy. Um, so a couple, couple kind of habits that I recommend to people, right? And habits that institutions like the RSA can certainly hope to work to cultivate in people and encourage in people. Um, you know, I'll give you four that, that I kind of wrote in this time essay. Number one, dig for what's going on beneath the opinion, right? Um, and so that goes to that initial point around complexity and, you know, assume complexity and contradiction in people, dig for what's going on below the opinion. When someone says to you, you know, this country has too many immigrants. Um, I think part of the problem actually with the culture of reasoning that you were describing is that we we kind of falsely assume that the way that person came to their view that we have too many immigrants in this country is through sitting with books. I mean, like there's something, you know, and like formulating that view. You know, I think the truth about a view like that is much closer to whoever said, you know, anger is what pain looks like in public, right? Mm -hmm. I, and and so, so your point about like reasoning and the RSA, I think it's really important. I think a lot of us who love democracy and talk about it and a lot of the theorists of democracy, we're actually totally wrong about where political opinions come from. Yeah, I think political opinions are often like feelings, yeah. you know, putting on, like throwing on a costume of reason uh, you know, five minutes before their Zoom, their first Zoom of the morning, you know? Um, and I think a lot of us are just like stuck in this old like Plato, Aristotle paradigm where people are sort of, you know, cogitating and weighing all the different possible immigration uh, stances they could have and then, and then deciding what one would... No, people are just fucking scared. People are, you know, people don't feel there's enough. Or, yeah. or people feel very hopeful and they do feel there's enough. Or people, you just met someone great and are now in a new relationship and suddenly you're kind of, 
open hearted and that extends to your view on immigration. Like, you know, I think that's such an important point that you raise in your book, because I do think there's a danger in someone taking your book and just saying, oh, wonderful. Let me, you know, embark on this kind of Western enlightenment tradition of reasoning with people and doing this art of persuasion. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm the daughter of two anthropologists and I think how culture gets created is an irrational process. You know, I don't think, and I think what you actually give insight into is a much more therapeutic process that we need to be a part of that um, underpins democracy. Yeah. And And even the word, like, even the word, like an irrational process, right. That's like, like we look down on just all our language around this. Like there's something deviant about it that, that people formulate their views of the world from places of emotion. And like, I think part of it, like what my reset with writing this book is like, there's nothing necessarily wrong with forming opinions from feelings. I mean, I think that's actually what people do. Well, feelings are a collection of experiences and where else to form, you know, where else to form opinions, Um, you know? So I think a lot of us, by the way, on the pro-democracy side of things are often arguing to people as though people are reasoning beings formulating their immigration stance from reason and the far right and the extremists totally actually understand what people are like in reality and are appealing to people based on emotion. And that is a huge asymmetry that we got to fix. You know, I think that's big. And I think the ways in which the Democrats have been hijacked by the kind of neoliberal order and the belief in the Chicago kind of economic school and the belief in kind of the rational individual agent, I think that's taken us down a path where progressives aren't embodied. Um, And suddenly it does feel like people can speak more from the heart and more from personal experiences around issues, you know, like abortion rights, um, you know, and, and gun violence. And those are issues where we're sentiment driven, right? Where we're leading first with sentiment. And I think for too long, you know, we didn't occupy that territory. And I think what was so attractive for people about Trump is he was emotionally relatable. I remember uh, one of the best pieces that I read about, you know, there was this moment after Trump was elected where everyone was trying to diagnose what was going on. People across the U.S. were doing, you know, poverty tours, for lack of a better word, trying to understand the Trump voter. Um, and an academic had, from from a kind of social psychology perspective, had written an essay on shame, right? And so to focus on what's going on behind the opinion it's, we have an economic inequality problem and people don't feel like they were able to live up to the economic forecast that they were promised when they were younger. And that creates conditions of shame. And so that was one of just the best pieces and diagnosis that I read around the Trump movement. And I think to engage at that level um, is, is really effective. There was another example that happened during the pandemic too, that I found to your point, I think part of what this work does is help us get out of despair and get out of this righteousness attitude and really leaning in more to people's lived and felt experience. And there were these um, guys who set up citizen assemblies in Michigan during the height of the pandemic when there were so many anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, people who just had really polarized opinions. And they brought people together um, to share their experiences. It wasn't just about, you know, reasoning, but it was about um, sentiment. It was about 
you know, people being able to share their concerns about their kids not being at school and and the impacts of that socially. And so I think it's just those opportunities to to unpack our culture um, and to unpack other people, but they feel really sparse. Um, so I'm just wondering in that vein, like for you, what what situations have you been a part of where you've witnessed that kind of work happening, where you've witnessed people coming together, creating bridges, um, and where has that happened? I think historically we used to, you know, people used to go to, you know, churches or to town halls or to places where they could regularly interact with people of very different views. And now we don't really have that anymore. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think the most inspiring thing I came across in reporting the book was this experiment called deep canvassing, which is very much trying to do what you're, what you're saying. And deep canvassing is, you know, grew out of, uh, a very bad development on a very otherwise good night, which is on the night Obama won the presidency in 2008, which people were, you know, remember with exuberance and joy uh, in California, gay marriage lost at the ballot box. It had been legalized by court earlier that year. And then it was, was uh, ended uh, after just going into effect, ended by referendum. And it, you know, it lost LA County right it was like like you think of la as like a you know at least by last time i visited it seems like a pretty uh, great place to be gay well most people in la voted against the equality and dignity of gay people in 2008 right and so it was a real shock and a wake-up call to folks in the gay community who were like at my fucking grocery store in los angeles the people around me like don't think i'm human like, where am I living, right? And so these, these, a group of gay rights activists basically started organizing, but in this kind of helter-skelter way for us, they, they wanted to go talk to homophobes and they started knocking on doors and asking people, like, why do you hate me, you know, essentially, you know? And it, over, it started from just like a very improvisational thing that some organizers were trying, just something much more, systematized and formal and developed, which is this process called deep canvassing, where people who want to do this work go knock on doors. Often they are the people affected by the issue at hand, undocumented people knocking on white people's doors in Arizona, talking about immigration, gay people knocking on people's doors, talking about gay rights, trans people knocking on people's doors, talking about trans rights. Again, no one has to do this. These are all people who are very gung-ho about doing this. They want to do this. Um, and what they do is, they, it's not canvassing where you hand someone a flyer, it's canvassing where you, you know, spend 30 to 40 minutes on the door if you can. Um, you kind of, you know, you listen at first, you strategically listen. You don't hide your stance, but you listen. You get, get it all out of people, get all the bile out, get all the prejudices out. Keep going. You got more bile? Keep going. Give me all your bile. Bile is finite. At some point, people actually run out of terrible things that they can say about whoever. And they've been heard now. That's important. They feel heard. And then you start trying to mine for dissonance. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you feel besides the thing you just said, right? So you, you, you think immigrants are lazy. Got you. Uh, do you know any immigrants? Is that immigrant, you know, lazy? Your gardener, is he lazy? No, in fact, he was here yesterday for 12 hours. He's, now he's the hardest working guy I, I know. 
Oh, and is this is people in his family? Do you know any of them? Oh, yeah, I, I know. Got to know his whole, you know, his whole family. Manuel's family is great. And are they, are they lazy? Uh, no, actually, his kids are both working full time and in community college. It's incredible. You know, I never. I wish my own kids would do that. And then at some point, so you said all immigrants are lazy, but then you gave this example. How does that? How is that sitting with you? That's mm-hmm. how they talk to these people. And you see, it may sound facile to you or not. People will sit there and be like. Oh, shit. People really have these revelations because, you know, you and I sit and talk about these issues like this all the time. Most people do not. Most people are living their lives, right? Most people are not thinking about immigration or trans rights most of the time. They're they're grinding out their lives. And someone comes to them and says, okay, let me get this out of you. But have you ever felt counted out? because of factors you couldn't control about yourself. How did that feel? How does that feeling square with what you said about trans people being dangerous? And you can see people having revelations. And so deep canvassing is an incredible thing. Wherever you live, it can be done. It should. It, I, I would love for it to spread to more communities around the world, but at its heart, it is, going beyond the idea of like, vote for me or give me $5 for my campaign and saying, we need to build a base, a growing base for multiracial egalitarian democracy with liberty and justice for all, no exceptions. It's not a transaction of politics to say vote for us this time. We need to build a base for those ideas and values that is so big and so durable and doesn't fluctuate based on inflation or based on charisma. Um, And this is base building. What deep canvassing is doing is deep politics. It is building a Well, it sounds like almost what you're describing is we need to build a society, right? Before we have the political realm, that there should be such a thing as society. There should be such a thing as society. Margaret Thatcher turns out to have been wrong, uh, not just about everything else, but also that. (laughs) About that. Um, Interesting. And I mean, it's, it's the initial thought I had is, yeah, how do you scale? How do you scale these ideas? Because the work that you're describing is just deep work um, and it's hyper-local work and it's it's really taking the time. And I rightly so, I don't think everyone can do it. You know, it is the work of people that want to be those credible messengers um, that feel comfortable taking on the emotional burden of doing that work um, and actually providing those you know, on passes to people. Um, and so, you know, do you, do you feel like part of in writing the book, were you hoping let's have more people join the ranks of persuaders? You know, do you see this as something that becomes more of a movement that we all contribute to kind of laying that fertile soil for a more kind of active civic and, um, communitarian life? Or what, what are some of the ways in which you thought about this, um, this movement growing? Yeah, look, I think we need, you know, the way to scale things is to have more people do them. You know, I think we need, I would love to see a million people doing deep canvassing in the United States, not thousands. Like I would love to see a million people doing it. I mean, uh, you know, not everything is like tech scaling, right? This is, this is scaling by just like more people getting involved. It doesn't scale uh, astronomically. It scales, you know, very, uh, in a very kind of small scale human way. But I think you can, we have a lot of people. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that's one thing, but look, there's stuff I suggest in the book in terms of 
that does scale more easily. Like better political messaging is really important. You know, better narrative. I mean, having pro-democracy forces try to become at least as good at storytelling and 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 narrative and message as the far right is would be a really great step. I think we need to rebuild political parties, mass political parties, so that they're not just remote, extremely online presences, but are IRL rooted in community. I think you should, you know, as Bhaskar Sankara has written, the center-left parties that that won in the 20th century were the ones that were so locally rooted that every building would have had a Democratic Party representative, for example, or a Labor Party representative. If you got a confusing letter from the tax authorities, you would go up to Mildred on the third floor, the Democratic Party lady, uh, you know, machine, Democratic machine, like representative in your building and be like, Mildred, I got a confusing letter from the IRS. And like Mildred could like sort you out. How remote does that feel from our world? I mean, mm -hmm. my goodness, the idea that I have no idea who the Democratic Party in my neighborhood, like some Democratic Party person who could actually help me with something, literally have no idea what that would be. I mean, I don't think I don't think it exists. Um, and so, you know, help you figure out schools, help you figure out, you know, health, like just non-existent. It's a party that is so far away, so remote. Um, and so bring bring that back. There's a lot of different things we can do. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I was just thinking about is the opportunity to be part of different networks that allow you to get out of your echo chamber. And so one of the groups that I've joined online is I have twin girls who are both one. And so there are all these other twin moms who come from every possible background. And so there's just this enormous solidarity and almost like a mutual aid group, people sending each other formula, people sending hand-me-downs. It's really been wonderful to see. And Everyone is coming from different political persuasions, has very different ideologies around kind of like economic relief, social safety nets, these types of things. And so I think that is kind of those types of networks need to take precedence. Like, mm -hmm. you know, when when do those things become more important than political identity or political tribalism? Um, I'm also just wondering, you know, we had midterm results recently that were quite different than a lot of pundits anticipated. Um, what, you know, for you, was that sort of um, a win for the persuaders or what, you know, what, what, what did that turn out really lead you to, to reflect on? I mean, the midterms were uh, a pretty surprisingly uh, terrific result uh, if you like democracy, because, um, you know, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party ran quite explicitly on an agenda of saving democracy. And there's a lot of skepticism about, is that gonna resonate with people as much as, you know, inflation and and these kind of pocketbook uh, concerns. And uh, in a way that, that I was not entirely uh, reassured of until it happened, um, the American people really spoke and said, they care about saving democracy. Um, and and kind of defied the patterns that you'd expect with this kind of inflation, with you know economic chaos, with a pandemic, with Joe Biden's relatively low approval ratings. People seem to recognize that the threat to you know the freedom of of the body um, in terms of the abortion issue, but also the freedom to choose leaders who will solve their problems, uh, aka democracy. That that those two things were really really paramount, and that was. That's a great sign. Uh, and I think now, you know, the, 
the thing is a 5248 victory for democracy over fascism is not it's it's both really reassuring and not that reassuring right um i, I like i don't want to live in a country where 48% of people are for fascism that's just not a safe country right <laughs> one that they may just win the next time but two that's just a lot of people walking around who are living in fantasies and 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 believe in violence as a way of solving problems and things like that so you know i think we need to do that kind of base building work that we were talking about to build a pro democracy movement frankly unlike any movement we've ever seen i think we need to build a pro democracy movement that uh, frankly learns and from some of the the political skills of the right but uses them for good learns how to command attention to pick fights generatively to to tell better stories to um to be help people kind of visualize the world they want to create not just what they're against um and look i i think we can do it i the, these people these persuaders I, I i wrote about in the book uh are doing incredible work every day to show what is possible for continued and expanded liberal democracy um and i i have faith that their that their way can win Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. So we're going to have to wrap up. But if you're watching along today, Anon's book, The Persuaders, Winning Hearts and Minds in a Divided World is available now. You can order from Foils with a 20% discount with the code FOILSRSA20. This event is part of the RSA's regular free Thursday lunchtime series. So check out our website to see more upcoming events. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank everyone for watching. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.